following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Well, welcome to Fathom. Good to have you this morning. Let's get to work. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, let's open them up to 1 Samuel chapter 14. Uh, if you brought a Bible with you, you can open that up. Uh, there are hardback black Bibles under every single chair that you can open up as well. 1 Samuel 14 is on page 236 in those Bibles. Uh, you can open a phone. You can open a tablet. Uh, we just love for you to see the text. Uh, if you're online with us, hey, we love you. Good morning. Uh, if you're on spring break, hope you're enjoying uh, the first day of spring. But uh, click that little Bible tab and go to 1 Samuel 14 as well. Uh, I just want to say this up front. As we jump into the text this morning, you're probably not going to like this sermon that much. This one uh, is, is just, it's a harder sermon this morning. Uh, if last week's passage, and I said this in last week's sermon, if last week's passage was my favorite uh, story in the entire book of 1 Samuel, and it is, and it still is, uh, then today's doesn't even hit my top 10. This might be my very bottom of the book kind of story. So I just wanted, you know, I th- you'll see why as we get into this text, but uh, I-, I think I just wanted to let you know that this one's not gonna be as fun. I hope last week was fun. It was fun for me. If it wasn't fun for you, that's too bad, okay? Uh, but this one I think is gonna be a little more challenging. Let me set it up, okay? Here we're, here's where we're at. Israel has an army now. They have a king now, Saul, and that army is pitted up against their arch rivals, the Philistines. Now, the Philistines have a huge army, an enormous army in comparison to the army of Israel. And Saul, who is the king, is terrified of this army. He is afraid. He's hiding with his troops in caves. They're hiding away rather than fighting the Philistines. Um, And Saul's son, Jonathan, uh, is bold and courageous, and he ends up with his armor bearer leading a charge against the entire army of the Philistines uh, that inspires the rest of Israel to join in the fight. They come out of the caves. Even Saul comes out of the cave, and they join the fight after being inspired by Jonathan. And last week in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 23, so if you look at verse 23, this is what the text said to us. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Aven. Okay, so, so that's it. You would think victory. The Lord has saved Israel. It's time to celebrate, right? It's time to hit the spoils. It's, it's time to, 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 to the victors go the spoils, right? Like this is the moment the Lord has delivered us. But as we turn to the next verse, Israel can hardly celebrate. And the, and the writer of this book takes an intentional U-turn right here. So look at verse 24. It starts by saying this, the men of Israel had been hard pressed that day. Now, now you have to pause right here. These uh, words are a stark juxtaposition. 23 and 24 are meant to jostle you a bit as the reader. This is what all the commentators say about these two verses. They're meant to be intentional polar opposites. In 23, it says the Lord saved Israel that day, but then 24, Israel is hard pressed. Okay. This is like oil and water in this moment. And we have seen the words hard pressed already in this section. Back in chapter 13, so 13 and 14 are really one big story, one big section. But back in 13, verse 6, Israel was called hard pressed, but it was because of this massive Philistine army. 
Israel was hard-pressed because of this invading force, but now the Philistines have been defeated and Israel is still hard-pressed. All right, so so why are the men of Israel still hard-pressed? Well, the text will tell us. The text is going to tell us. Look at verse 24 again. The men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. So this is the answer, okay? Why are the the people of God, the men of Israel hard pressed? Well, um, Saul had placed a curse on any person, on any troop who ate food before evening and apparently total victory over the Philistines. Saul, he shows a strange ability to turn deliverance into distress here. God has saved his people and he makes this bizarre vow, like don't eat any food, you guys. That's his vow. And we've seen this with Saul in the past couple of chapters. It's like, it's like Saul wants to include God in his plans, but he's unwilling to do it in God's timing, and he's unwilling to do it by God's prescription, like in God's way. It's like he wants to add some, some God into his, into his life, but he's unable to do it the way that the scriptures teach him to do it. And I think what we're seeing is kind of a pseudo-spiritual superstition here. A little bit of superstition showing up here where Saul thinks that God is more likely to listen to him and to deliver them fully from the Philistines if his men indulge in this unnecessary self-denial. He's just adding a little superstition into his faith. And I think, I think this is an application point for us. I think, I think too many Christians can fall prey to this temptation to use good things like fasting in this example, to use good things to try to control our fates apart from the Lord, to try and manipulate the Lord a little bit by, by doing good things. You see, the Christian life is often really difficult and complex. And so superstition makes that easier, right? It boils down the complexity of life into a simple kind of input-output equation. That's what superstition will do to you, right? If I do my devotions, I'll have a good day, right? If I attend Sunday services, my week is going to be blessed, right? If I have a cross hanging on my rearview mirror, then I won't crash my car. I'll be protected. It's like a superstition that we sprinkle over our lives. But, but what superstitions do is... They, they give us an illusion of control. The world can be a terror, and it is a terrifying place. But as long as we get the right things in place, as long as we do the right things, as long as we kind of figure out the Rubik's Cube of our faith, we think we can maintain some control over our lives, regardless of God's plan for us. But I just want to say to you today, as we set this up, you can do all the right things and it's still not turn out how you think it should. That's the message that we're going to see today. So this is where Saul is, okay? 
Uh, He makes this bizarre vow about food and things are not going to go well because of this. Now, we're going to have to really move to cover some some work here. I've got to read a lot of text, so I just need you to stick with me. We're going to read most of this chapter uh, and then I will bring us into kind of some application. But here we go. We're going to start in verse 25. We're going to go through verse 30. So follow with me in your text. He just makes this vow. Verse 25. Now, when all the people came to the forest, behold... There was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. Right? Don't eat. Okay? Verse 27. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand, dipped it in the honeycomb, and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath saying, cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now, the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. Okay, we're going to see three ramifications of this foolish vow of Saul. And we just saw the first one, the first one being military exhaustion. It's a ramification of this, I'll just say a a dumb vow. What a terrible vow. And and this military exhaustion, this is not the time you want to fast, right? When you are fighting the enemies in a land filled with hills and crags and valleys, this is not the time to fast. Uh, I fast just personally once a week. Okay. One one day a week I fast. It's a way for me spiritually to grow in self-control. When I talked about fasting a couple years ago, I said, the reason why I fast is because I want to practice saying no to a good thing so that I am trained to say no to maybe bigger things that will come to me. So it's part of that growing in self-control for me. But I fast once a week, and then I also exercise. I run maybe three or four days a week, okay? And, 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 and I make a practice of it never to fast on the same day that I run, all right? Just out of sheer wisdom. That's my practice. No fasting on a running day. And I do this pretty religiously, except for one day. Once I fasted and I ran on the same day. Last fall, uh, I ran six miles one morning and then I fasted all day. Um, And that afternoon, I was here at work. I was in my office. I was doing a membership interview in my office. And midway through the interview, uh, my hamstring cramped up on me like I've never felt before in my life. All right? And I was sitting in my chair, and this is as the gal is sharing her testimony, like talking about how Jesus has changed her life. I'm sitting there, my hamstring seizes, and I stand up. Like as she, she must have thought there was a demon or like I was ready to, you know, in the spirit or something. I don't know what it was. She's in the middle of talking. I stand up, and I'm going, ah, because my hamstring is cramping because I hadn't had any food or calories or water. Any, I was just a mess. Now, what happened is uh, between the lack of calories and too much physical activity and not enough water and then getting up too quickly, I felt my vision tunnel up on me, okay? And I slinked back into my chair with my eyes open 
and passed out. Can you imagine this woman? Can you imagine this? Right in the middle of a meeting, okay? I came to a few minutes later with six paramedics in my office. My shirt was off, and they were putting probes on me to give me an EKG, and the gal still became a member. Right? Even with a blouseless plaster on, a, on the floor, okay? Um, that was not the time to fast. No, this is not the time to fast. Saul deprives his troops of getting any sort of calories on the day that they fought the battle with the Philistines. And just note, Jonathan here, he didn't hear the announcement, right? That's what the text said. Jonathan hadn't heard this proclamation. And the question is why? Like, why didn't he hear this? And it's pure conjecture, but here's my guess. Because he was fighting the battle, the very battle that Saul was supposed to be fighting, he's too busy fighting to hear the edict about don't eat anything. And so he eats the honey and he even brings up in his little diatribe the foolishness of his father's vow. He says, my father has become a stench to Israel. This is a problem. There's something wrong here. So this military exhaustion is the first thing that comes, but there's more, believe it or not, it gets worse. Look at verse 31. So they struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ahalon, and the people were very faint, obviously, right? 32, the people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And Saul said, you have dealt treacherously Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Here's the second ramification of this vow. This vow of starvation has now led to ritual transgression. It's led to military exhaustion and now to ritual transgression because you see in the Old Testament law, God's people are commanded not to eat meat with blood in it. That is, they were meant to drain it properly. Apparently, the Hebrews didn't like their steak medium rare. That was against the rules, okay? God help us, I don't know. But, but the people were so faint and hungry after this battle is, is, is ended that the text says they pounce on the spoil, they slaughter the animals on the ground, and they start eating meat before all the blood has been properly drained. And this is a transgression against God's law. They are breaking Old Testament commands right now. And listen, God has killed people for much less than the Old Testament. He really has. But just note that he doesn't punish them for their transgression. And I think that's really because it isn't their fault. It's this dumb vow. But it's led them to this ritual transgression. Now, there's one more ramification. We're going to read verses 36 through 46. So this is 10 whole verses. Stick with me. And then we'll make some applications. Verse 36. Then Saul said, let's go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, whatever, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, 
Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. God did not answer Saul that day. And Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves or the Lord as the Lord lives who saves through, saves Israel though it be in Jonathan my son he shall surely die but there was not a man among all the people who answered him then he said to all Israel you shall be on one side and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other and the people said to Saul do what seems good to you therefore Saul said o lord uh, or lord or o lord god of Israel why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in my son Jonathan, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, cast the lot between my son, me and my son, Jonathan, and Jonathan was taken. Verse 43. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall be not one hair of his head fall to the ground for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan, so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Okay. The third ramification for Saul's foolish vow is the near death for his son Jonathan. Okay, Israel's deliver, deliverer is almost destroyed in this moment. Because it wasn't Saul who saved Israel from the Philistines, right? Like, let's we just keep that straight. It was Jonathan, and everyone knows it. We see it in the text. And we see how asinine this move of Saul is, and that everybody now realizes that this guy's gone off the deep end. We can see this. You see, Saul, he wanted to plunder the defeated Philistines. That's how that little section started. He wanted to plunder, and he seeks the Lord. He wants to seek the Lord to see if he should go and plunder, but God doesn't answer him. God does not answer him, which is a sign of divine disapproval that God is not responding to the priests. But Saul thinks that God is silent because someone broke his vow, right? That's why he thinks God is being quiet. He thinks someone broke his vow about not eating and he knows it's Jonathan, but no one will speak against Jonathan because they love Jonathan and they realize if something happens to Jonathan, they're stuck with Saul. That's exactly what's going on here. So Saul essentially casts loss, lots uh, to determine whether it's he and his son or whether it's Israel and the lot falls to he and his son. And then he casts lots again between him and Jonathan. And Jonathan is the one who gets chosen. And so essentially Saul is about to kill his own son over a superstitious vow. But then the people step in is essentially to say, sorry, Saul, you aren't going to touch him. Not a hair on his head will be harmed Bro, you caused this mess, not Jonathan. He's the one who actually saved us. And then the rest of this chapter, which we're not going to read, uh, really just chronicles a little bit more about Saul's kingship and his lineage. So it's not hugely important. This is the, the, the passage that we have for today. Do you see why I don't like it? It's just bizarre 
It's not in my, it doesn't even make my top 10. It's maybe, maybe my least favorite passage. What do we do with this passage? Well, this passage is really in the larger section of chapters 13 and 14. These two chapters chronicle really one big story showing the stark contrast between Saul and his son, Jonathan. That's all we've seen in the last two chapters. It's taken us four weeks to get through it, but that's the whole idea here. A contrast between the folly of Saul and the successes of Jonathan. And any serious reader of the text will see that these chapters uh, prove that Jonathan is the true royal material in this family, not Saul. Right? All the way through, even the people now are like, don't you dare, king, don't you dare touch your son, Saul, because he's the one who delivered us. But here's where the tragedy comes in. The tragedy comes in that Jonathan will never get the opportunity to be a king. He's never going to get the opportunity, even though he might have been a magnificent king over God's people. Because if you remember back in chapter 13, after making an unlawful sacrifice, Saul is stripped of the kingdom, of the kingship. So his son, his heir, Jonathan, would never sit on the throne, again, because of Saul's foolishness, not because of Jonathan's. And the question immediately asked in my mind and in our minds is, why, wouldn't, why not Jonathan? Why not Jonathan? Why must Jonathan's opportunities be squashed by Saul's choices? Right? Why do you think God would do it? Why does, he, why does God work this way? Why would he waste like this? And it's the point that I want us to get from the text this morning, and that's, it's not fair. That's not fair. As I read this, I think we're supposed to get this contrast between Saul and Jonathan and the fact that Saul is king and Jonathan is not and will never be, it's just not fair. See, the reason why this story offends our modern sensibilities is because in the Western cultural mindset, we think that things ought to always be fair. We think things ought to be fair. In our minds, self-fulfillment is a right. It's a guaranteed right. We think that the equation of ingenuity plus Self-discipline, like hard work, should equal success. Jonathan obviously has ingenuity, the ability. He also has the hard work. He risks his life to save his people, and we think that that should equal success. But y'all, how, how many of you know that's just not how life always works? It's not. That's not fair. And church, fair really isn't a principle that we see in the Bible. It's a principle that we embody as Western kind of Americans, but it's not a principle that we see in the scriptures. Let me give you three more examples on top of this one, okay? First, think about the story of Joseph in Genesis. Okay, Joseph is sold by his own brothers into slavery, right? He ends up in the house of Potiphar, ends up going to jail on a false rape charge. Then while he's in prison, he interprets the cupbearer's dream. You remember this? And, and, and asks him to remember him and, and speak well of him before Pharaoh, only to have the cupbearer forget about him. 
And then in one of the lesser known moments in Joseph's life, in Genesis 49, when Judah, Joseph's father, is kind of giving out blessings to his sons, Judah, one of the older brothers, is given the blessing that a future king would come from his line. Joseph doesn't receive that blessing. Joseph's line will all but be obscured moving forward. One of the very brothers who sold Joseph into slavery would have the line of the king and the line of the Messiah from him. That's not fair. It's not fair. Second example to consider. John the Baptist. New Testament, John the Baptist. John's role in redemption history uh, is to be the forerunner of the Messiah. He's to come before the Messiah, before the Christ, to prepare the way for Jesus Christ to come on the scene. That's his role. And this would make his life incredibly difficult. John's life was incredibly difficult. It meant that he was going to have to be homeless. He was going to be a homeless kind of itinerant preacher, prophet guy. He was going to live in the woods. He was going to wear animal skins. He would eat bugs and honey and never touch a drop of alcohol or wine in his life. Essentially, John is going to be a physical picture of radical obedience in order to call God's people to repentance. He's going to be on display. His life will be a picture of obedience to God. And John does all of it. He lives it out completely. I mean, in goodness, if you came to me, if God came to me and said, hey, I want you to become a homeless preacher. Chris, I want you to just sell your house. I want you to become a homeless preacher. I'm pretty sure I would respond with, look, I'm going to need like an audible voice coming out of a bush that is not being consumed or something, Right? This one's hard to take. And oh, by the way, you probably need to talk with Marcy too because she's not going to buy this one for me either, right? Like it's just, I can't imagine this kind of radical obedience that John has, but he is unbelievably obedient. And the text says that when John comes, or when Jesus comes on the scene, John gladly moves out of the spotlight and into the supporting role of who he knew he was to be, and ultimately he's going to die for it, this. That's not fair. John living a full life with a wife and a fleet of camels, that's fair. But death for being faithful, that's not fair. Third example is what's known as the Hall of Faith. Okay, uh, in the book of Hebrews, New Testament, chapter 11, we find a list of men and women of old who were heroes of our faith, heroes who all lived by faith. And that list covers such Old Testament names as Abel, Enoch, and Noah, okay, Abraham, and Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. Joseph is mentioned in the Hall of Faith. It mentions Moses, Big Mo gets a, gets a shout out in that, okay? Even Rahab the prostitute, the one who saves Israel in the battle of Jericho, before the battle of Jericho, that, that, those are the names who show up in the hall of faith. But then in Hebrews 11, uh, verse 32, something really important happens. I'm gonna put this up on the screen. Let me read this to you. Here's the writer saying this. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith 
conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection. Now listen, that's really awesome stuff. That stuff is good and encouraging and ho- I'm shutting the mouths of lions. That's Daniel, right? Escaping the edge of the sword. Those are incredible things, but the text doesn't stop there. We'll pick it back up in verse 35. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in the skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. So now, this is the hall of faith. These are faithful men and women of God, and some receive their dead back by resurrection, while others are sawn in two? That's not fair. And that's what I want us to get today. It's not fair, y'all. Joseph didn't get fair. But in Genesis chapter 50, when talking to his brothers who sold him into slavery about their past, he says this famous line, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And John the Baptist, he didn't get fair either. But when his disciples, they see what's happening and people are leaving them and going to follow Jesus and they start complaining to John, John famously replies this, he must increase, but I must decrease. And even those in the hall of faith who were mocked and flogged and imprisoned and killed and mistreated, even those, the writer of Hebrews says in verse 38, of whom... The world was not worthy. And church, it seems to me that Jonathan knows this as well. Like he seems to know better than our modern sensibilities because he doesn't make excuses here, right? He's not like, hey, I didn't even hear that oath. And it was a dumb oath to begin with. This isn't fair. See, no, to, to Jonathan, it's not that it was Saul's kingdom, It's not that it was even Jonathan's kingdom. It was God's kingdom. And for Jonathan, the kingdom was not his to seize, not his to rule, but his to serve. That was his perspective. And though Jonathan may have made a wonderful king, I mean, he would have made a great king based on everything that we have about his life. Even though he may have made a wonderful king, his he will faithfully play out his role as prince to his father. And he will faithfully play out his role as the best friend to the next king, the man after God's own heart. 
but he'll never get the position for himself. So let me apply this to us today, church. I think we should, um, I think we should praise the Lord for the that's not fair moments in the Bible. I think we should praise the Lord for this. Because if Joseph doesn't suffer, and if John the Baptist doesn't decrease, and if Hebrews 11 just ended with women received back their dead from, uh, their resurrection from the dead, period. If that's how it ended, then let me say this. The Bible cannot be trusted and all of this is a lie. Because if that doesn't happen, if the scriptures say this to us, which I think is a popularized version of the scriptures, but it's not what the text says. But if the scriptures say this to us, Jesus makes everything happy. Jesus makes everything better. If you have Jesus, you're not gonna struggle. You won't hurt. You won't lose. You won't weep. All there is with Jesus is rainbows and, and sprinkles. It's just heaven. It's unicorns and all the things that my daughter loves, cats. <laughs> if you give your life to Jesus, there are no more tears. There's no more sadness. There's no more loss. There's no more perplexity or confusion. There's no more anger or despair, depression and anxiety. Forget about those. They're gone. You're going to skip through life with gladness. That's what life with Jesus is like. See, if that were true, if that's what the Bible put forth, then what would happen when our lives don't look like that? If that were true, listen, we would be forced for the rest of our lives to fake it. If that were true, we'd have to pretend we were okay. Or we would have to conclude that we didn't have enough faith. Wouldn't we? And God help us, that's what some of us are doing. Praise God for the mess. Praise God for the trials. Praise God for, for the that's not fair. Because here's what I know. This is what life actually looks like. That's not fair is how life actually works. It's not all awesome. It's not all happy. It's not all Instagram on a date night with a filter on. It's not the way it works. And listen, every one of us in this room knows that. I could give you all face mics and we would all testify that life does not go that way once you start following Jesus. And any Americanized version of Christianity that has made it so clean and happy and clappy, skip through the rest of your life kind of mentality should not be trusted. It should not be trusted. It's just not how the Bible, God's word, portrays life working. In fact, what we see all through the Bible is follow God. It could end really badly. See, giving our hearts to Jesus does not mean that all the rest of our days, we're gonna have no struggle. You will war against your flesh until glory. You're gonna wrestle. You're gonna have spells of doubt where you're gonna have to push in in faith to trust the Lord. You're gonna wrestle with sin. You're gonna find yourself in relational strife. You will face anxiety. You will face depression. You will question. Christ doesn't promise these things are gonna go away. 
but he empowers and he grants faith to walk in those things. It's by faith. Following after the Lord in the highs and the lows in the life of a broken world that we can actually become people of whom the world was not worthy. That's not fair. You're darn right it's not. But then I begin to think a little deeper on this and I find myself going, God, thank you. God, thanks for being unfair. Thanks for not playing fair. Because if we're honest, there isn't a single one of us in here who wants to go to God and to say, hey, I really want fair from you. I'd really like what I deserve. Can I get that, please? Right? Like, because we'd all back away and expect, like, thunder from heaven to fry that dude. Go Old Testament on him, right? Give me what I deserve. Back up, right? Does anybody want what they deserve? Certainly not me. Certainly not me. There's not one of us who could stand up here and say, I deserve God's grace. That's fair. Grace is fair for me. That's not, not, not me. Like with my life, with what I've done, with what goes through my mind. I mean, the stuff you hear from me is the filtered version. You don't know what kind of crazy is going on in here. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is that the greatest move of that's not fair is indeed the gospel. God took all of our sin and all of our rebellion and placed it on his son. Yo, that's not fair. And God took all of Christ's righteousness and all of his obedience and he offers it to us freely. That's not fair. But praise God that it's not fair. So listen, if you've been struggling with this stuff, feeling like you've been getting a raw deal, life isn't playing out the way that you thought it was supposed to, and you're just going, God, where are you? Have you abandoned me? I thought you were with me. I thought you were for me. This isn't fair. What is wrong? Why is this happening? If that's where you're at, I just want to tell you, Jesus is enough for that. Jesus is enough for you. God hasn't forsaken you. It might feel that way, but he hasn't. In fact, he forsook his son for you. Praise the Lord for that's not fair. God, help us to believe this. Let's pray together. Father, I don't like this passage. I don't like it because I don't like the fact that my life is actually far less in my control than I could ever imagine. I don't like it because in my mind and in my heart, I really, on the surface, believe that if I do good, I should get good. But as I dig a little deeper, Lord, I know that there is none, nothing good within me. That the good that I want to do, to quote Paul, is not what I do. I keep doing the things I don't want to do. And the punishment for that is death. What I, what I earn is death and separation and judgment. Judgment. 
That's what's fair. And, and so, Lord, I praise you for, for not playing fair. I praise you, Jesus, for taking all of my mess on yourself. I praise you for being so unfair as to give me what I don't deserve, which is grace and compassion. And so, Lord, I pray today for us as a community, as a church, that, that I imagine there are those in here today who are wrestling with this. Life isn't playing fair right now, and, and it hurts, and it's scary, and you feel abandoned, and we feel neglected even. But Lord, give us eyes to see the larger picture. Give us eyes to see what, what Joseph saw, that you are at work. Give us eyes to see what, what John saw, that Christ must increase. Give us eyes to have faith like those in the hall of faith, regardless of the circumstances receiving the dead back or being sawn in two. Give us faith like Jonathan, the man beside the man after God's own heart, the man beside the foolish first king of Israel, but the man who portrays through his life faithfulness to your kingdom. Lord, let him be a model for us. So Holy Spirit, I pray you work right now. You've been preaching to our hearts today. I pray you, you do more good work in our lives. Help us to confess where we think we're getting the raw end of the deal, but give us eyes to see, give us hope that you are in those details for our good and for your glory. So Lord, we love you. Thank you for even a passage that we don't much like. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.